So we are in a series called Paradigm where we're encouraging you to read the Bible and enabling you to read the Bible with understanding. So we are encouraging that. Wouldn't it be tragic, however, if people started reading the Bible and rather than building their faith, it resulted in people questioning their faith or even possibly losing their faith? Now, for those of us who have been around church for a while and kind of grew up in this, then uh, the the idea that reading your Bible would cause you to to lose faith seems very foreign and seems kind of outside of the realm of the possibility. But I will tell you that if you have not experienced this, then you probably will encounter someone who has experienced this. You may have children that will deal with this. So this is hugely important. In today's message, which is part 11 of the Paradigm series, we are talking about, and this is, I need help, uh, the, it's still not doing it. I want to back up one. There we go. That uh, this is, when we read the Bible, we are encountering a different world. Now, a paradigm is a framework for understanding, and every one of us approaches the scriptures, approaches the Bible, with a certain framework or understanding. And the goal of this series is to give you a useful, beneficial, and accurate framework or paradigm for understanding the scriptures. And when you go to the scriptures, it's helpful to understand that you're encountering a different world. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that in just a second. Uh, The question, and I'm not sure why this is dark on here, but it's something was lost in translation on these slides. But in your bulletin, I always put the big question at the top. And what it says is, what do I do with the parts of the Bible that are confusing or even offensive? Confusing or even offensive. And again, if you grew up in this, the idea that the Bible could be confusing, well, you kind of get that, because there are times where you read something and you're like, I have no idea what that meant. But the idea that the Bible could even be offensive is something that if you're around church and and grew up in it, you kind of lose the shock value of some of the things that are in the scriptures. Uh, You can encounter all kinds of things, Uh, extreme misogyny, you can encounter polygamy, you can encounter incest, you can encounter all kinds of things, and Sometimes it's not even clear, well, are are they saying this is okay or are they condemning it? Because it doesn't always come out and say explicitly. So if a person is just dumped into the scriptures and starts reading and they encounter some of these things, or even if they've grown up in church and then as they become an adult, they're going through that process that all of us who grew up in church have to do, which is transitioning from your parents' or church's faith to your own faith, then it is sometimes a very scary handoff. And sometimes it doesn't survive the handoff. People's faith does not survive the handoff. So the question is, when we or someone we know or someone we love encounters 
parts of the Bible that are confusing or offensive, how do we handle that? What can we do? Is that necessary? And if we do encounter it, how can we approach it? Now, last week, for those of you that were here or listened online, you remember that John, my son, did uh, a presentation of the Sermon on the Mount by memory, which was awesome. If you haven't experienced that, go back and listen to it. It was, it was really amazing. Uh, and there was one passage in that uh, in that whole sermon that probably was probably one of the most confusing and ununderstood, is that a word? Ununderstood scriptures in the, that whole passage. It's in Matthew chapter six, just two verses, verses 22 and 23. Now, some of you will know what this means because you've been around me for read uh, something like this in the past, but I'm just gonna read it to you and uh, you tell me if you can, figure it out. Uh, It says, your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. So that, you know, do not worry, which Jesus also says in the Sermon on the Mount. That's pretty clear. We get that. We understand that. This, I'm not exactly sure the first time I read this what exactly Jesus is talking about. So the question, again, when you encounter passages that are confusing or even offensive, what do you do? What we're really talking about today is the idea of interpretation. And you may remember that over the course of this series, I have said to you, I want you to be good interpreters of the scripture. There are people who handle the scripture really well and people that love God and love the scriptures that totally botch this and mishandle it. And I want, if you are a part of Cornerstone, as you go out into the world, please do not be like a bull in a china shop when it comes to biblical interpretation. I want you to be good at it. I want you to be a good uh, interpreter and a good, uh, therefore that leads to good application as well. So we're talking about interpretation. Again, this is a part of a much larger series where we are working through a framework for understanding the Bible. It was originally suggested by a podcast from the Bible Project. The link to that is in your growth guide. So I hope that you will, if you haven't already, start listening along. And in fact, go at least one past that series because I just listened to to the message after, the podcast after they're done with this series, and it's still a lot related to it and might give you even a little bit insight into what we might do next. I don't know. I'm not sure. But the overall framework or paradigm, as we've put it, is that the point of the Bible is to point you to Jesus. The way that the Bible Project puts it is that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Uh, The pillars that support that include the human and divine nature of the Bible. The Bible is both human and divine. If you're going to be a good interpreter, if you're going to read the Bible with understanding, you're not going to overemphasize or de-emphasize either side of that. The Bible is both human and divine. Secondly, we said that 
you have to look at it as a unified work or what the Bible teaches is true is true. And this is very much related to what we're talking about today. You have to look at the context of the entire scripture in order to understand parts of scripture. Otherwise, you will pull things out of context and proof text things, and that is a mishandling of the scripture and is likely to lead you astray. It's what the Bible teaches overall that is true, and that's what we believe. Thirdly, this is messianic literature. The Bible is the story of God's setting things right through his son. Fourthly, it is meditative literature. It's not like a book or a movie that you just read or watch once and then put it on the shelf. The Bible was designed to prompt ongoing reflection and response. And the response that it calls for is actually going to lead you to a life that is flourishing and good. It is wisdom literature. It's going to give you wisdom for life because human flourishing is the goal. As we come to the sixth of seven, probably next week will be the last message in this series, that we are talking today about what they describe as the context of the scriptures. The way the Bible Project puts it is that the Bible is contextually rooted literature. Now, really, all literature is contextually rooted. It's written in a particular time, place, and in a particular language. In order to understand any literature, including the Bible, then you have to take those things into consideration. They go on to say this, because the Bible was written in another time and culture, we need to honor its ancient historical context as we come to understand it better. What are they saying? You can't understand the scripture without taking into consideration the context of the scripture. And the scripture has a different time, culture, place, all of these things, and in order to understand it, you have to take all those things into consideration. They go on to say, it's important to recognize the culture of the biblical authors as well as our own culture. You see, because not just the Bible has its culture, its time, place, and language, but we also live in a particular time and place and culture, and that influences and, and, um, and affects our understanding. So it's one thing to take that into consideration, the culture of the biblical authors, but we also, if we're going to be good interpreters, need to understand that we are bringing our own biases and culture and understanding to the experience as well. So we recognize the culture of the biblical authors as well as our own culture when we read the Bible. Often, and this is where I got this from, often, and I love this, this is really good. This, this, this is worth the price of admission right here. Often, if something in the Bible feels offensive or strange to us, and as I mentioned, you are going to, if you start reading the Bible, you're going to encounter things that seem strange and maybe even offensive. Rather than, rather than that resulting in you internalizing doubts rather than you saying, well, maybe, uh, am I in a cult? <laughs> you know, is there something, uh, this is crazy, this doesn't lie. Rather than going down that road, how about 
if you just, when you encounter that kind of thing, so, okay, what that tells me is that there's something that I don't understand about this. And that's okay. That's, that's okay. It's, it's okay not to understand. You are living, you're speaking a different language. We live in a different time, in a different place, with a different culture. You're not going to get that. I mean, John and Mason are getting ready to spend two years in Portugal in our time and in our world just to learn a different language and learn a different culture. So do we think that we're going to pick up an ancient document written sometime a couple of thousand years ago at least in a different language and just boom, get it with perfect understanding and say, oh yeah, I get that. I, I, and my first read is going to be absolutely correct and good. No, of course not. So when you realize, oh, that's weird. That's, that doesn't make sense to me. That, that can't be right. Then take that as a cue to say, oh, I, I just, there's probably just something about the context that I don't understand. And then learn and do the research and do the work. And eventually, I think you will find that nine times out of 10, you will come to an understanding that fits, that will diffuse or even anticipate or even make disappear the offensive or strange aspect of the scriptures. So... I'm going to reword, as I have all of the pillars and the framework, uh, to, uh, something, to something, a bottom line, that I think will be most uh, succinct and helpful that will stick with you. And it's one that I was taught when I was learning the biblical languages, uh, in particular in Greek uh, class, and that is that context is king. So the sixth pillar is that context is king. When it comes to interpreting the scriptures, the king, the principle for interpreting and understanding the scriptures is to look at it in context. And there are a variety of different contexts that we've already described. There is the context of the language that is being spoken. There is the context of the, each verse that you find is in a chapter. Each chapter is in a book, and that book is in a collection, and those two collections make up, Old and New Testament, make up our Bible. So there's just all of this literary context, plus there is linguistic context, there is cultural context, there is time and place, all all of these things. So if you want to become a good interpreter, you will remember, say it together, context is king. Yes, my work here is done. But I'm going to keep talking for just a little bit. Okay, so the challenge that I'm going to give you, the practical step that you can apply today is to read the Bible in a different translation than you're used to. I will come back to that to the end. That will make more sense at that time. Now, you may remember that in addition to those of you who are live here on site, that we are also filming for online. So check the calendar, be here on site. If you're watching online I would, and you're in this area, we would love to be able to welcome you in person. Online, on demand is good. On site is better. This message will be broadcast next week online and available on demand next week as well on our website, cornerstonenh.org. And if uh, you're wondering what we are all about, it's this. We inspire and equip people to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, knowing that following Jesus makes life better, 
makes you better at life, and brings glory to God in the process. Now, uh, I know all of you who are here today, but there may be some people who are new online, and if you are new, we would love to be able to welcome you personally and also uh, uh, be able to stay in touch with you. The easiest way we can do that is if you text the word new to our church number, 603-225-2550, we will be able to do that. So please let us know who you are. We would love to welcome you into our online congregation. So again, what's our bottom line? Context Context is king. Context is king. Let me unpack that a little bit for you. I already hinted at this, but every text, every verse has a context. So read it. That's one of the best and most helpful things that you can do. So you're looking at a verse. You say, okay, well, what... What's, what's going on in this chapter? And this chapter is in what kind of book of the Bible? We call them books, but there are some that are books. There are some that are letters. There are some that are a particular type of literature called an apocalypse. There are prophetic books. There are, there's wisdom literature. There's poetry. There's prose. There's all kinds of context, literary context as well. So take that into consideration. And I also mean this in the case of not just read it like literally, read the words, but also kind of like what we say when we go into a setting and we say, read the room, you know, just be, just be socially aware. Well, be contextually aware when you are reading the scripture that, that the, what time, what place, what, what's the situation there and, and read that as well. So let's do a little experiment. I, ha- I started out by reading to you that slightly confusing passage from Matthew chapter six. So if you have a Bible and there are Bibles on each of the tables, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter six uh, and let's look at the context together because I'm not gonna put this on screen. This will be mostly just uh, from the Bible. And I know that I give you growth guides and I give you the scripture online and you probably feel like I don't even need to bring a Bible, but I would encourage you to bring a Bible. Uh, You know, it's sometimes nice to be able to read along with the scripture and sometimes it's just just more, uh, there's something better about having a tangible book in your hand. So let's look at it together. This passage, uh, again, eye is the lamp of the body, produces light. If your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. Bad eye, dark body. If you, and if you think that you, the light you have is actually darkness, how deep the darkness is. So let's look at these couple of verses in context. Well, let's look at the whole, let's just start with chapter six, because that's the chapter we're in, and let's look at how it starts. Well, if you uh, were to read carefully, you'll notice that there are three sections, three introduced with three key phrases in the first part. When you give to someone in need, what's he talking about there? Just one word. Charity. Charity. Anybody else? Okay, that's good. Um, so I, p- I picked generosity, generosity or charity when you give to someone in need. Then verse five, when you pray, okay? And then in verse uh, seven, he repeats when you pray because they're still talking about that and it gives us the Lord's prayer. And then it says, verse 16, and when you fast. So there are three things going on there when you when you give, when you pray, when you fast. Uh, then in verse 19, it seems like he picks up 
that charity or generosity idea again. It says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them. Verse 20, store your treasures in heaven. And then there's this passage that we're dealing with, verses 22 and 23, about the, the eye being the lamp of the body. And then verse 24 no one can serve two masters. He's returning to this idea of generosity again or where you store up your treasure or money in general. And that little paragraph ends with the famous statement, you cannot serve both God and money. Then verse 25 that is why I tell you not to worry. And he's talking about worry, but in, he's talking about worry very specifically, worrying about certain things. He says, verse 31, so don't worry about these things. Well, what things, Jesus? What things are you telling us not to worry about? Saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father knows all your needs. So if you look at it in context, let me just kind of pull all the threads together. He's talked about when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And then he comes back to the idea of money and he says, look, if you're going to store up treasures, if you're going to gather things and resources and finances, then the best place to do that is up in heaven. Now, there's, you know, you'll have to figure out exactly, you know, well, how do we do that? How do we lay up treasures in heaven? But that's the whole idea. Then he talks about the light of the eye. Then it says, no one can serve two masters and he's talking about the tension that we have between money and God and serving both of those. And then when it comes to worry, what's, what's the connection there? Well, if I'm worried about what I'm going to eat or what I'm going to wear or what I'm going to drink, then anytime I get something in my hands, I'm going to hold on to it very tightly because I'm worried. I, I, I can't share. I can't be generous. I can't extend charity to someone else because I don't know if my needs are going to be met, okay? So there's, there's definitely a theme or a context to this whole chapter. And right in the middle, because look, it makes a sandwich. Don't store up treasures here. I is the lamp of the body. You can't serve two masters. You'll, serve, uh, you'll love one, hate the other. You can't serve both God and money. So the context is telling us that maybe this has something to do with money or generosity or charity, right? So, uh, so that's a good thing to know. So what am I saying? I'm saying we're, we're a little bit confused. So what do we need to do? We need to look at the context. The context is going to give us some clue as to what we are talking about because context is king. Now, this leads me into the second point. We've really not got the understanding there. We've just got a clue so far. The next point is that the Bible was written in another language, time, and place. So recognize it. Just take that into consideration. The Bible was written in another language, time, and place. Now, literally, that passage that we're looking at says evil eye or good eye. Now, most of the time when we think of an evil eye, we, mean, we think of glaring at someone and making them, you know, if looks could kill. 
That's not what it's talking about there. Uh, uh, and what's, a good, what's an evil eye? What's a good eye? Well, in the context of Matthew and the other disciples and the gospel of Matthew is the gospel that is specifically written to Jewish believers. Well, they would have known the scriptures and they would have been familiar with the Jewish idioms that are used in the scriptures and they probably would have read or maybe even memorized something like Proverbs 23, verse six. Here's what it says. Do not eat the bread of a selfish person or desire his delicacies. Now, this is a, a, three verse, a two or three verse teaching, and we'll look at the whole thing. But if you're reading, for example, the New American Standard Bible, you'll notice that this highlighted phrase, a selfish person, has a footnote. And often footnotes give you alternate readings or a more literal translation. And if you read the footnote in the NASB, it says this is literally an evil eye. So don't eat the bread of an evil eye or a person with an evil eye or desire his delicacies. Now what the New American Standard has done is translated that idea for us because the Hebrew idiom is, of course, that if you have an evil or bad eye, your eyes are closed to the needs of others around you. But a person who has a good eye, whose eyes are filled with light, are aware of and open to the needs of those around them and do something about them. Ah, it really is about charity or generosity. And what, what is Jesus teaching in the midst of that? He's saying, if, if you, uh, this is an indicator, and this is a, a consistent t- teaching throughout the scripture, the, your, your generosity is an indicator. The way that you handle money is an indicator of the heart condition of your soul. So if you are generous if you see the needs of others and do something about it, that tells you something about your whole body, about what's going on on the inside. If your eyes are blind to the needs around you, then that tells you that there's a little bit of blindness throughout your whole soul as well. And that's what Jesus is teaching. Now, the New Living Translation takes this a step further and says, don't eat with people who are stingy. So again, tight-fisted, that's the way we talk about it with hands, tight-fisted or open-handed. That's how we talk about it. But for them, it was closed eyes, open eyes, evil eyes, good eyes, dark eyes, light eyes. So don't eat with people who are stingy. What does it do? It goes on to explain, for, New American Standard picking up again, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. Now, I heard many, many times this verse quoted, for, he, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That was the translation that I was familiar with. And the way that that was taught more often than not with people who would bring up this verse is your, the way you think about things makes it so, right? You can control your reality by the way that you think about it. If you think you're, you're going to be rich, then you will become rich. That, that, that's the, the idea. Now, is that what the Bible teaches? 
Or is that ripping it out of context and making it say something that it does not mean whatsoever? For as a man thinks within himself, remember parallelism is an often used feature of scripture, but especially biblical poetry, which is what this is. And I've kept the poetic lines separated, which I usually don't. But what's the parallel here? He's thinking within himself. Well, what is he thinking? He says to you, eat and drink. In other words, he's acting very generous. Oh, come on over, eat your fill. Come and we've got, the, we've got an extra place at the table for you. But what's going on within himself? His heart is not with you. He's saying something, but he doesn't mean it. That's not where his heart is. So what is it teaching? It says when he, for, as he thinks within himself, so he is. It's saying, it doesn't matter what people say, it's where their heart is, it's what they're thinking on the inside. That will give you a truer indication of who this person is and what they mean and what they will do. And so it goes on to say, because Proverbs is giving you generalized wisdom, say, if you're in a situation like this and somebody who's truly stingy is saying eat and drink, and but they don't mean it, then it's, it's not gonna be a very pleasant experience because you will vomit up the morsel you have eaten. You're not gonna be satisfied. It's not gonna taste good. It's gonna have a bad aftertaste and waste your compliments. You're gonna say nice things to them. It's not gonna make any difference because their heart is not with you to begin with. So now we totally understand what Jesus was teaching. And we did that two ways. Number one, we looked at the context, the literary context of the Sermon on the Mount and that section of the Sermon on the Mount and find that 80% of that chapter is all about how you handle money and particularly generosity and charity. And then we looked at the cultural context and realized that they use a different, a different idiom, a different way of talking about generosity than we do. And we just became wise, good interpreters because we looked at the context. We were confused, but we didn't get offended or run away, we looked for the context, and now we understand because context is king. There's another way that people get tripped up by this, and that's when encountering the different culture and cultural assumptions that we find in the scripture. And so here's what I would say to that. The Bible is not teaching culture, but transforming it. The Bible is not teaching culture. In other words, just because the Bible was written in a particular time and place and in a particular culture, and what is the culture? It's a, it's a way of doing things. It's a framework for understanding the world. It is the values of a particular people group. What do they value? What don't they value? And the Bible was written in an ancient Jewish culture but it's not saying that that culture, whatever it is, whether it was uh, ancient Jewish, first temple, second temple, New Testament, uh, Roman times, it's not saying this is the culture that you should have. But the Bible and the gospel in particular is planted in the midst of a particular culture and it always has the effect of transforming that culture. Not, not adopting it, not sanctifying it, not putting its stamp of approval on it, but it transforms it because the, because the gospel, the Bible, uh, our faith, 
does have particular culture values and things that we value, but it tends to be at least in contrast and sometimes completely counter to the culture that we live in. So let me give you a couple of examples. These are ones that have tripped people up for centuries. It has to do with misogyny and slavery. So you're reading along in 1 Peter chapter 3, and it says, Live to husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman. Now, immediately, we react against that, right? Because what is that saying? It sounds like, on a first read, it's saying, if you're a woman, then you're just weaker. And so we, as husbands and men, we need to, we need to treat you accordingly. Now, that is offensive, right? In our culture, in our time and place, that is extremely offensive because we have adopted and, and understood the idea that men and women, although different, are equal in value and equal in personhood and that just because a person is a woman does not mean that that is some kind of character defect. And this was written into a culture uh, the, uh, where a, in a relatively short period of time historically, the, a codified Jewish prayer would be, thank God I am not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. I mean, that, they're thinking, what would be the worst thing that could happen to me? Well, I could have been born a slave, or I could have been born a Gentile, God forbid, or I could have been born a woman. Woo, dodge the bullet there. You know, that's the culture that this is written into. But let's look at the context. I'm confused. I'm offended. So that's my key, my cue to look at the context. Well, let's look at the way the New Living, Translate, New Living Translation puts the second part of this verse, she may be weaker than you. Okay, well, yeah, we still don't like that so much. That's not quite as in your face, but she may be weaker than you, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. What is the Bible teaching in this passage? Well, the thing that stands out to us because it's so countercultural is women are weaker. Well, what do you mean by that? The thing that would have stood out to the original readers of Peter's letter was the radical, transformational, never heard of before idea that women are equal partners in God's gift of new life. That there's no distinction that God doesn't make a distinction between Jews and Gentiles or men and women or slaves and masters. They all are included and they are all equal partners in God's gift of new life. That was completely and utterly countercultural to the people that this letter was written to. And I also like that uh, he sums it up like this. Uh, to the husbands, treat her as you should. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, he just explained that in the previous verse. She is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. How should you treat her? Like that, right? 
Now, let's look, let's look a, little bit di- uh, a little bit deeper. Again, and if you're reading the New American Standard, there's a little footnote that says that literally where it says weaker, that the words used are weaker vessel. A weaker vessel. Now, where have we heard that before, if you're familiar with the scriptures? Anybody? Anybody? Have you heard talking about vessels before? Women as, okay. What's that? Uh, it might be similar to that. I'm not sure exactly where that is, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I think, when it's talking about, um, uh, it's talking about marriage and engagement, it talks about the vessel of a person and what it means is their body. It's actually talking about their literal body. So when he says, when Peter says that women are the weaker vessel, what is he saying here? He's just making a common observation that is universally true. Generally speaking, men are larger and physically stronger than women. That's not always the case. I know some women that could pound me into the ground. That would be okay. But, uh, but generally speaking, throughout history, uh, averages, uh, the men are bigger and stronger and more to the point, they have used that size and power to oppress, misuse, and abuse women. And in addition to that, he's writing to a culture where, uh, where women did not have the same rights as men, where they were, their testimony, for example, was not accepted in court as men's were. That's why it's so countercultural that the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. It's a totally different culture. And this is much more about authority. If you are stronger, bigger, or in a place of power over someone else, your responsibility is to leverage that power for the benefit of those under your power. So what's he saying here is like, you could because of your legal standing, because of your physical standing, you could oppress your wife and women in general. You could treat them as less than. It's teaching the exact opposite of the first impression that we got. You have authority or power, use that to serve others because she's not lesser than, she is equal to you in God's gift of life. And that's how you treat her, or else you're not gonna be heard when you go and offer your prayers to God. Briefly, let's look at the issue of slavery. Now, in the Bible, we encounter slavery, and it's just kind of an assumed thing. It's like, yeah, it exists, and uh, there's no big calls for the abolition, abolition of slavery, and uh, it just kind of is assumed. And so the question becomes, well, is, uh, is the Bible teaching that that's okay? Is that, is that the way it's supposed to be? Many people throughout history have argued that. Or is there something else going on here? Or can I believe and can I trust the scriptures when, they, when it seems to be embracing or even teaching something that is so completely countercultural to what we know and believe to be true? But let's look at an example. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22, speaking to slaves and masters. And it says to slaves, 
And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. And then the second part of that verse says, and if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. In the setting in which these were written, for the first 300 at least years of the existence of the Christian faith and church, no Christians to speak of were in any kind of power. That means for longer than the United States has been in existence, Christians were on the bottom rung of power. So Paul could have written, set all the slaves free and, and argue for emancipation would have made exactly zero difference because they didn't have the power. They were not in positions of power. But look at what, uh, think of how this plays out. First Corinthians, uh, uh, in Ephesians 6, 9, it says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Well, what does, what does the same way mean? Well, first he addressed slaves, and then he's addressing masters. And in the slave part, it's talking about treating masters with respect and honor, whether they deserve it or not, whether they treat you with respect or honor or not. And then... He turns around and says, masters, oh, by the way, you're supposed to treat the slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. And he goes on to give some other specifics. Now think about it. In the United States Constitution, it says all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those were the seeds of the destruction of slavery in America. Now it took a bloody civil war, and decades in order for those seeds to bear fruit and for slavery to be abolished. But the seeds were there from the beginning. What kind of slavery could survive an idea that both slaves and masters are equal before God, that there's not because of race or position or culture or whatever country of origin that you're better than somebody else. What system of slavery could survive if all are equal before God and are co-heirs with Christ? What system of slavery could exist over the long haul where masters and slaves were encouraged to treat each other and see each other as brothers? The seeds of the destruction of slavery were planted in the gospel. And although Christians were not in a position of power to really do anything about the, in their culture in that time and place, eventually Christians, for the most part, were the prime movers and shakers that led to the abolishment of slavery wherever it has been abolished in our world today. So, he goes on to say, you both have the same master in heaven. Slavery's not going to fly when that is true. And he has no favorites. So when you're offended or confused, there's probably a context we don't understand because context is king. Lastly, this is the quickest point. The Bible is not teaching science, but making use of it. The Bible is not teaching science, but making use of it. Um, 
this is, this is huge because uh, you hear people say, well, just follow the science. And there's often a big move to try to see our current scientific perspective in the scriptures. And there's some value to that. But think about what science is. There's two ways of, of looking at this. If science is our understanding of the way the world works, then that's going to change. 500 years from now, we're going to have a different understanding of the way the world works. Just like 500 years ago, we had a different and seeming to us very primitive idea of how the world works. So sometimes when you hear people say, oh, just trust the science, what they mean is trust our current understanding of the way things work in the world. I do not necessarily trust that. Now, if they mean trust observation and good scientific method, et cetera, et cetera, then yeah, there's no problem with that. But that's often not the way it's used. It's used as a, as a uh, what's the word, a cludge, a thing you beat somebody up with. A, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> a club to beat people up who don't agree with you. Just follow the science, okay? So what is science? It's our current understanding of the way the world works. Now, the Bible is not trying to teach you the accurate way that uh, the scientific method or things like that. It's actually teaching something beyond that, but it will make use of a particular culture, time, and places understanding of the way the world worked. Let's look at an example. In Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you didn't have the benefit of telescopes and teaching and thousands of years of scientific inquiry and you were just plopped into our world just observing, what would you see? Well, you would see you're standing on some ground. So there's earth or land or ground. All those words are, are, come from the same word in the translation. Then you look up above you and you're like, okay, there's, there's a sky. There's open space above me. And then if I walk far enough, eventually I'm going to find a place where there's some water. So they're, uh, just observationally, what's the world made of? Well, there's ground, there's sky, and there's water. Now, in the account of creation, the seven days of creation, what does it say? God, cre God created the ground. He made the, the, the waters were there. He separated out the ground. And then there was the sky. And then on the next three days, he filled them with life. He put some, some uh, animals and plants on the ground. He put some animals in the water. And he put some animals in the sky. What is that teaching? Now, I'm not so sure that the main point of that was to teach you how long it took God to do that. And there are different interpretations on that. What I think God is trying to teach us through that and what the Bible is teaching is, look, everything that you see, everything that you experience, God did it. That's what it's teaching. Now, sometimes people get so attached to their particular interpretation or understanding, current understanding of the scriptures and what it teaches that if something comes along that challenges that, they have to deny it, ignore it, or give up their faith. That's unfortunate and unnecessary. 
it's unfortunate and it's unnecessary. And it's repeating the same mistakes of history where, remember the story of Galileo? Before that time, the church taught and everybody thought that the world was the center of the universe and all the stars and everything just kind of rotated around the stationary earth and Galileo through greater and greater observations. Like, I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, That doesn't make sense for this and this and this. And he was persecuted and I believe even excommunicated by the church because it didn't fit with their particular understanding but he was right, and eventually everybody had to adopt to that. Was the Bible teaching that the earth is the center of the universe? No, it was teaching, look, the important thing to know is whatever you see and whatever's here, God created it. In Colossians, it picks up the same theme for, through him, and this pulls in the idea of Jesus. So him to Jesus, I was gonna read the whole thing to you, but I won't for time's sake. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on the earth. Do you see some parallels there from Genesis chapter one? And what's, what's he bringing us around to? Look, God created it all. And oh, by the way, Jesus was there from the beginning. And from the beginning, the scriptures, the point of the scriptures is to point people to Jesus. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me from Genesis 1-1 all the way through the end of Revelation. It's about Jesus And the point is to bring you to a point where you will say yes to him. Don't let the things that confuse you or offend you now or when you encounter something in the future cause you to lose your faith. It's absolutely and completely unnecessary. You probably just need greater context. We're talking about interpretation, saying context is king. And here's the practical step in that, is to read the Bible in a different translation than you're used to. It will help you to kind of see things from a different perspective and have a greater context. You will note there in your growth guide, right under that challenge, that I've given you the initials of some good translations. The New American Standard Bible, the... um, Christian Standard Bible, that's the version that John memorized the Sermon on the Mount in. The New International Version, the NLV, NIV, the NLT, which is our primary translation here at Cornerstone, the New Living Translation, and then the Message, which I often use. You will find on that table at the back, if you don't have a copy of these particular ones, there's a free version of the Message. Feel free to pick that up. There's also a New Believer's Bible, which includes the New Living Translation, as well as some helps to get people started in their faith. The other thing that you will see there is that I've arranged them in order of translation approach. There are two poles to translation. One is a literal word-for-word translation where they try to use the same words to translate the same words in the previous language to help you to pick out where it says, uh, oh, evil eye, it says that there. I don't know what that means, but evil eye is here and evil eye is worked there. So their idea is if we use the same words in those places, then maybe you'll make the connections. There's also the other pole, which is a dynamic equivalence, which is thought for thought that uh, like the New Living Translation translated that if the guy is stingy, well, they're not gonna try to make you do all the work of figuring out what an evil eye is. They're just gonna tell you. It means he's not generous. He's stingy. Uh, So there are different poles, and these are arranged 
all according to those polls. The New American Standard is the most literal. The message is the most uh, paraphrased. So pick another version and use that as your primary Bible reading for the next phase. So let's pray together. And with the amen, you'll be released to do your groups and uh, have a good week. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that there are answers to the questions that we have about the scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do the good work of being a good interpreter, to see things in context, in all of their contexts. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this to bolster and build our own faith and that you would use it to help us to help others to hold on to and strengthen their faith. I pray this in Jesus' name.